Hi, I'm Benjamin Knight. And I'm Marco Sparks. And welcome to Brewers Watch PLL2. We are joined here today by special guest, director Norman Buckley. Hi, Norman. Hey, it's good to be back with you guys. Glad to have you back. Yes, definitely. It seemed only fitting that we had you on the podcast at least one more time. You're kind of responsible for our podcast taking off the way it did. And um, also integral to the PLL as a show, so got lots of questions for you well that's nice of you to say that i think your podcast speaks for itself but uh i was happy to promote it in any way i could i think it's been a, a very enjoyable adjunct to the entire pretty little liars process <laughs> all right well what to discuss um at the top of our list uh and i don't know where you want to take this but uh any thoughts on shippers when it comes to pll and just kind of interacting with fans on twitter well you know i I enjoy the fans a lot. I think I'm pretty clear about that with with all of them, even though they love to give me a hard time and <laughs> they they get very angry about things I say, but I certainly don't ever mean to to uh, ruffle anybody's feathers. I think that the the passion that they feel about these various uh, ships and just the stories, the direction of the stories. I, I I hope it really fuels their own creativity. I hope that they feel motivated to write their own stories. And 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 I I I don't want to take anything away from from anybody's enjoyment of of a relationship on a television series. But it's also hard for me to take it too seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they they act as though these fictional relationships are are real and and um i feel that i try to serve a a purpose of pouring a little bit of cold water on that you know just Mm -hmm. a wake-up call to remind these these young kids that um it's just a story and um the the story has light and dark elements to it so you know i don't know what to say about the shippers except i love them more than they love me (laughs) (laughs) i just i think it's fascinating because i think more so than a lot of people you organically promote those pathways to people to reach out to you and communicate with you and then a simple joke about marnie (laughs) can turn into a lot of ridiculous hate a lot of uh, a lot of passion. I'll I'll say that. Yeah, uh, I think that they they obviously. Um, uh, but there's you know I I got a lot of support too. I, yeah. I said what I had to say, and there was a lot of support for my point of view as well. I of course have made no secret about the fact that I've always been troubled by the uh, the uh, power dynamic mm-hmm. in the Ezra Aria relationship. I uh, I don't find that there's anything to romanticize about that relationship. I think it's a uh, adolescent. I think any adult male who gets involved with a high school sophomore is emotionally immature. There, I said it. It's true. <laughs> That's what I believe. Uh, Shouldn't be controversial, right? Right. <laughs> I like to think that Arya as a character will grow out of that. I feel almost certain that she will. Mm-hmm. And, um, she will move on. He won't. <laughs> but um, 
That being said, I love Ian Harding and I love Lucy Hale and I uh, enjoy my relationship with both of them. And at a certain point, I had to give myself over to the inevitable that uh, <laughs> their relationship was going to um, end up in a um, quote unquote happy ending. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just don't believe in, in those kinds of happy endings. So It is kind of amazing to me, though. It seems like you always seem to get the scenes in your episode where things aren't going too well for Ezra and Arga. Or, or like proposals. Yeah. <laughs> proposals I, that fail. Yeah. I just couldn't believe I landed on the proposal episode. <laughs> I did. <laughs> and I gave myself to it. I gave myself to the romance of it. Uh, I, um, I also, God knows, I feel like I filmed the two of them having sex <laughs> mm-hmm. than more than anybody else. But it, you know, I, I always enjoyed working with those two. I always enjoyed working with them. I thought that they were delightful. They're they're both delightful human beings, and I just I felt that there were stories I would like to tell with the two of them that I just didn't have the opportunity. Mm. <laughs> it, um, it went the way it went. And um, I, I, I don't question that. This is, you know, it's not my show. I'm not a writer on the show. I've tried to stress that to the shippers over the years that don't have anything to do with the writing of it. Uh, they, they get very indignant sometimes because when I say that I, when I make some disapproving uh, comment about something, they, they, they talk to me like I'm the one who came up with the idea in the first place. So what am I talking about? But mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that, that, that a lot of the, the viewers of the show don't understand that a director doesn't have anything to do with the writing of it. At least, you know, I, at least I didn't. Um, I'm a, a, a gun for hire. I come in, I shoot the episode I'm given. I don't necessarily agree with everything in the scripts that I'm given. And I don't make any apologies for that. I, I do the best job I can, but I, I think that the relationship, uh, I look, I, I think I said to you guys the last time I was on your podcast, I would like for n- all four of these girls to end up with other people besides the person that they had their first crush on in <laughs> high school. Yeah. I think that that's a, that's a, um, that's a romantic trope that I hope eventually goes by the wayside. This idea that somehow you should end up with that that first person. I guess it does happen, and I I don't take that away from from uh, uh, anybody that it does happen to. But for the most part, uh, our high school relationships are a passage to some some other place, and uh, I cared enough about these characters as characters to wish that all of them would have found other other things in their lives. I, I like to believe that beyond the end of this show, that's exactly what happens. But uh, that's my own fan fiction. <laughs> yeah, I think there's always a, a tension between the fans and the show's writing because they, they have their favorite characters. They want them to be together and be happy and then nothing else. But it's like if you, you're making a TV show, you, you have to have drama and conflict or else what's the point of what you're doing, you know? And so they're never going they're all the shippers are always going to be at odds with the the writing in some way or other just because their characters can never relax in their relationship yeah well i'm fascinated by this idea too that that um 
that that is this, this whole idea of uh, what they call in game. <laughs> yeah. Characters are destined to be together. Um, it it flies in the face of every of every psychological concept um, of every classical idea in literature or mythology. Uh, it just it's it's a it's a trope. It's a fairy tale. It's childish. It's mm -hmm. tied into childhood. This idea of the happy ending, as opposed to life being more of a process. I don't I don't want to denigrate it, but I just feel like I I can't be true to myself without saying that. That's not what happens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A wedding is not an ending; it's a beginning, usually. Yeah, and 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 the idea of um, Arya has nothing else in her life but this romance with this character Ezra always bothered me. You know, it just always bothered me. I thought one of the things that um, you know, I I, I uh, had spoken to you guys about maybe talking a little bit about. Uh, the OC and um, Gossip Girl. Oh yeah, go for it. You know, I've I've worked on these shows that are that are teen phenomenons, and the OC was a little bit before the social media wave. Uh, the the social media really started to become a big thing during the period of time I was working on Gossip Girl, and then uh, certainly it's 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 just grown over the time I've worked on Pretty Little Liars. But all three of these shows have been um, teen phenomenons that have that have um, revolved around um, relationships. The one that I think is probably the truest is, was the OC that that Ryan Atwood, you know, carried a torch for this girl Marissa, who self-destructed along the way. I I um, I think that there was something really uh, powerful about that idea. I I, I actually was against them. Um, uh, killing her off at the end of the third season. And I, I think it was something that even I, Josh Schwartz, I think, has talked about questioning whether that was the right choice or not. But but I do believe that there was something powerful about the idea of 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 uh, being in love with this um, this girl that ultimately was beyond his grasp. That's a powerful idea, and uh, I. I um, I think that real love is complicated, and I think that relationships are complicated. That they're sometimes painful, and sometimes there's real suffering attached to them. And and uh, I don't mind seeing that in drama. I don't mind examining that in drama. And I think a lot of fans would prefer never to have anything be uncomfortable whatsoever. And I and I don't know what that show would be. Yeah, <laughs> um, I don't know what that would look like. I was a couple years ago, one of our listeners discover this phenomenon of the end game the happily ever after end game and they emailed us asking well, is there any examples of that and i was kind of late and i was kind of flippant and i just responded like simply the romeo and juliet <laughs> <laughs> that was the only thing i could think of <laughs> and i was like if that's if that's what you want go for it but yeah i mean it's it's I'm, drama i'm pretty sure i'd never heard of this whole end game business before pll i had never heard of it before uh Gossip Girl. And I never mm. heard of it. I never heard of the idea of shippers. I didn't even know what shippers were for the longest time. Uh, people would talk about ships and I'd be like, what, what the hell are you talking about? I don't <laughs> know what that means. And um, I, I found to my chagrin that 
I sure better not challenge some of them. <laughs> the gossip girl shippers were pretty, um, they were, they were pretty tough. They were pretty, uh, they were pretty determined to have it their way. Um, but I, I do think that I wrote a, I wrote a, um, essay several years ago. It's on my blog, on my website about breakfast at Tiffany's. I think breakfast at Tiffany's is, is such an interesting film phenomenon because I think it really has somehow endured as a romantic fantasy for a lot of young women. They um, use that that movie as a as a um, touchstone for their own uh, romantic ideas of 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 uh, what it's like to fall in love and to I guess live in New York and and uh, but when you look at it, it's really a very dark story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Aria told us as much. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a dark story. It's a story about a uh, a woman who runs away from home, becomes a prostitute, who falls in love with another prostitute, and um, the end of it I've always found very uh, bittersweet because I don't. It's my it's my suspicion that those two characters don't end up together. It's right. it's my suspicion that beyond the end of the movie, uh, they they uh, split apart again, and um, like they do in the novel, <laughs> the, the the novel ends with him him thinking about uh, Holly and hoping that she's well wherever she is, and um, I think that there's something about that idea between the movie and the book that that says a lot about the way that we process movies versus literature we we are able to have the happy ending we want because the movie ends at a certain point or the television show ends at a certain point but literature pushes you further to think about just how difficult things really are and that and that um you know Love is not easy. Love is not easy. It's it's a it's a it's a uh, it's a struggle. It's a it's full of suffering. It's full of of wonderful things and 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 things that draw you together. But it's also full of of things that push you apart. When you really love somebody, as I have, you you love them in spite of the the difficulties, and that's the best part of it. Is mm-hmm. that. You work through the suffering. You work through the difficulty. You 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 find the place where uh, unconditional love rests. And and I, I feel like a lot of times TV shows, not particularly this TV show, but TV shows in general, can be very glib about the nature of love, and uh, and they they perpetuate a, an idea of it that it's easier than it is. Well, and, I think- I think that it kind of falls into a lot of problems that people have where they don't take the time to who is this person really as opposed to who do I see them as. And I think that's kind of a, a similar mental mathematics that happened with like a shipper. And I think it's interesting that you said that the TV show versus or the movie versus the book, whereas I think the book would be easier for you to misinterpret in your brain whatever you want to see depending on how you read it. Whereas you would think a show or a movie, it's people acting out real life. It's more concrete, and yet people will still not in the headspace though. The true, but you'll still take what you want from it. Mm-hmm. Um, that Ezra is a prince, and that Arya is the princess in need of saving somehow. 
Um, that, that is funny. I'm pretty sure in the Christmas episode of PLL, Spencer is kind of throwing shade at Allie for believing that uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's ended in a happy way like that with Holly marrying uh, Paul Barjack. I'm pretty sure there's a line in there about that. Hmm. Well, I remember when I was uh, uh, working on a film earlier in my career, uh, there was a young assistant editor and she said it was her favorite movie. And I said, oh, so you like a movie about a prostitute? And uh, she said, what are you talking about? And I said, Holly Golightly was a prostitute. And she's like, no, she wasn't. And I was like, yes, she was. That's what she did. She took money from men and for her favors. Mm-hmm. And she said, no, she just took money for the for the um, powder room. <laughs> like, um, the okay. production code. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it was such a shock to her that that the idea that Holly Golightly was a prostitute that just that to me was just so funny. That's funny. I was I was actually just watching To Catch a Thief last night and wondering if there are certain scenes where like if the production code didn't exist here, would something else be happening? So I like that you mentioned that because I actually turned it on last night myself. And the reason why I turned it on is I knew we were going to talk to you, Norman, and I was looking at your pictures of fireworks in Vancouver. And I oh, was just, yes. I was just thinking of Carrie and Grace, um, and he is double her age in that movie. But like when they pan to the, or they cut to the fireworks and they cut back to them afterwards on the couch, and, and but are they smoking a cigarette? <laughs> Everything's cool now. <laughs> Unfortunately, my experience with fireworks here in Vancouver was uh, not nearly as exciting as to catch a thief. <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, you know, I, I do. I do like the sleight of hand with which they approach a lot of sexual situations in those older movies. I, I do think that there's something about leaving things to the imagination mm-hmm. that that um, um, is is powerful. Uh, speaking of shippers, you know, I also got a lot of grief. You know, the the last episode I did, I got a lot of grief about the uh, Allison and Emily. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. the nighttime and, picnic. I just was like, I don't, I don't know what you guys are looking for, but um, it's not an instructional video. <laughs> <laughs> it was supposed to uh, evoke romance as opposed to being um, uh, something that was more um, yeah. overt. I, 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 but I got a lot of shit about that, too. So go I've- figure I've delved into some of the the Emerson shipper forms. They literally get their stopwatches out for those scenes, uh, just because they feel like they, or at least my interpretation is that they feel like they are kind of the redheaded stepchild of the ships that never kind of get the full due. Which I suppose you could make arguments for, but they're yeah. they're vocally definitely catching up. I mean, to me, I realized it was all a bit nuts. I think when I saw some someone's tweet years ago, I think directed at you, Norman, and I, Marlon King. Where they could list off the years, the minutes, the screen time, the number of scenes since Ezra and Arya had, had like something like like a kiss, like a happy kiss, or, or something. yeah. And I was like, this is dark. <laughs> yeah, I I think that that it's very easy to to make fun of it and to uh, to tease about it, but I, I think that there is another level on which you could look at it and really wonder what what is it that is really the issue. What is it that one is really, um, externalizing. Yeah. And, and, um, I, I, I can't answer that, but I, I do think it's, it's indicative of something dark in our culture that people are 
for worrying about such things. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I do think that um, a lot of people feel disenfranchised in some way, and I can only guess that it's projection onto mm-hmm. this thing that they love, which I'm glad that they love it, but mm-hmm. to, uh, I mean, I've been accused of being, you know, homophobic, <laughs> which is, <laughs> which, is uh, which is pretty um, ironic considering that I am uh, a gay man, but, you know, I, I just am bemused. Yeah. I think partly too, it's probably just the internet and modern culture is a little less personal than it used to be. And we're kind of looking for these shared experiences together through a medium instead of literally with each other, you know? Um, Yeah. I mean, how it's, it's how what the obsession of Eros and Thanatos just expresses itself, I guess, in this era. Yeah, but I do think it's it becomes so clinical. I think you're right to sit and and time something and to and to evaluate something based upon the specifics of of time and 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 uh, behavior. Uh, I I think that there is something that that's off about that. Um, there was certainly no desire in the last episode I did. To show favoritism to any of the couples in their various um, uh, sex scenes, there just wasn't. Mm-hmm. You know, there was there was no desire to to um, say, well, we're giving this one more, and we're going to make it longer, and and we're going to let them do more things. The only the only one that we really were focused on, quite frankly, was the one between um, um, Toby and, and who turned out to be, you know, Alex Drake. But yeah, uh, that one was very specific, but, but it was, uh, I think it was designed to be a little more, uh, sensual to, and what well, I certainly was hoping that it would tip people off, that something was off. About I, the, uh, I, I think you can definitely get that. I also wonder if just in the construction of the episode, if it, the other romance scenes were there specifically to muddy the water a little bit. So you're not yeah. just watching one sex scene and paying real close attention it's switching between three of them yeah absolutely and the uh and you know there was nothing particularly different about this the sex between um um ezra and aria (laughs) and then emily and allison really i mean they they were kissing that's all they were doing Mm -hmm. um i don't know what to say about about it beyond that but the 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 scene with uh, Toby and, and uh, Alex was uh, definitely, you know, she she was dominating, and uh, we we talked about that before we shot it in such a way that it it felt different. We wanted it to feel different than than the other scenes, but um, but you can't please everybody, you know. Mm. So that's the that's the lesson of the shippers is that you can't please everybody. Yeah. There's always going to be somebody who's disappointed. There's always going to be somebody who's who's um, uh, hoping that it's going to be a different story to tell in the same way that, I, you know, I would like there, there to have been different stories to tell uh, on that show. That show was a big part of my life for seven years, and I would uh, show up and they'd hand me a script and I'd go, oh, this is fun to do, or like, oh, I wish I'd gotten to do that. <laughs> Instead, you know, that's just the way it is. Like a lesbian bar fight? Like the lesbian bar fight I never got to do. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, there will maybe be a place for that in a future show. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned the uh, Toby uh, 
Spencer slash Alexine there. I assume you knew Troy and obviously knew, and I think Keegan would have all known at that point that this was an Alex scene, right? Yes. Uh, y- yes, we did. Uh, I, um, I knew we, we had, we had uh, uh, some internal discussions about how far to push certain things because um, Marlene really didn't want the secret to be out until the finale. And um, I've always been much more of a mind that, well, there's more suspense if we if we know yeah, show, show the bomb right <laughs> but but uh that's that's not the way they chose to go so th- there were a lot of internal discussions about how far to push certain things and and um i uh, i'm pretty happy with the way it came out because i do feel like that certain people caught on um but nobody knew for sure so mm-hmm. i think we we hit it just right in terms of the balance um she plays that scene very, very different from the time she shows up at the door. She, she plays it, she plays it very different. And I, I think I even had to pull her back on, on one or two lines because she was, she was being so odd that it was, that it was tipping the hat a little bit in that direction. I but, think there was like a patented Alex smirk that she used a couple of times. I really, yes. I really enjoyed looking back. Yeah, very definitely. And, and, uh, just the way that she, that she worked her way over to the, um, um, sofa, the way she held the beer bottle, none of it was like Spencer at all. You know? Yeah. The way she moves. Yeah. And I think that, that she was very good at that. It was a lot of fun, actually. That was a, a, a very fun scene to shoot, but that was the scene I was focused on mm-hmm. from that sequence. Mm-hmm. I wasn't focused on the picnic out in the woods, which is such a funny idea anyway i think mm-hmm. i love the fact that you guys picked up on that that how how weird that allison was like yeah let's go out in the woods in the dark because <laughs> well, why not <laughs> logistically romantic, yeah. like all of those pillows and candles and shit like just just the sheer idea that she would be like carting all that stuff from her car she's got the hand truck <laughs> yeah or was it? I thought we like we she she backed up there, unloaded everything, then parked the car far away, or then went and picked up. Emily. I don't know if you can get a car there, <laughs> or maybe she just hired somebody to do it. <laughs> the same person who Mona hired to chop down that tree that one time. <laughs> Why not? You know, there's got to be like some type of uh, vendors in Rosewood that like help them out with some of this. Yeah. There's a contractor. So the same people, the same people who built Alex Drake's house. Yeah, subterranean <laughs> <in> tunnels. <laughs> yeah. There's a crew. Sometimes your job is to go steal like a a bronze bell from a church. Sometimes <laughs> you just truck a thousand candles to a they really guy's take a, apartment. Like an oath of Omerta. There, they they never discuss <laughs> what they do. <laughs> oh God, I did love that show. I'll tell you, it's gonna be uh, um, hard to have that experience again. I guess this is a great time because we never really get to discuss it on on Twitter. There's been several times you've been very nice to point out we've missed things, like um, the the saw that almost cuts Emily in half years ago, and you're like, "How can you not be obsessed with how is that? How is she chained to that conveyor belt?" <laughs> well, it was so funny because when I shot that scene, they uh, they they were describing it, and I was just trying to figure it out. I thought, well. How is that po- possible? And then it just became like, well, who cares? Just stick it on there with tape. <laughs> it's just the idea of it. And, you know, in, in many ways, I think that's right. And it's one of the things I've tried to say, and I know that some people don't like it, but a lot of the stuff, I think you can overthink it. It's mm-hmm. really 
the thing that I think is so brilliant about Marlene is that Marlene has a real strong sense of make the audience feel something. It doesn't really matter about the mechanics of it or the logic of it. It's it's the idea that they feel something, which is a very Hitchcockian idea. And that's one of the reasons why I was just so pleased to get to work on this show is um, to experiment with a lot of those ideas. If you if you really break down any Hitchcock film, none of it makes sense. You know, it's just it just doesn't. You know, Vertigo is 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 the silliest plot in the world if you really think about it. Mm-hmm. But you you aren't thinking about it because you're feeling something. And where I feel that that things on Pretty Little Liars sometimes, if people thought about it too much, then I then I always felt that okay, we're not delivering on the aspect of making them feel enough that they forget about it mm-hmm. because nobody really is bumped on that sawmill sequence. Yeah, yeah, because everyone, it's so overwhelming, nope. everything that's happening that you're not thinking about the logistics of it. And I think that's a perfect example of a scene that was really working because of the fact that um, people were feeling something every moment, so they weren't thinking about the logic, they weren't thinking about the timeline, they weren't thinking about all the details, they were they were having an experience of something. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, therefore, think that's a very successful sequence. Uh a sequence, I'm trying to think of one where where uh, it didn't feel like it worked as well from one of my own shows. But but that's the key. The key is to, to construct uh, pieces of film uh, or, or image, uh, to, to construct images in, 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 an, in a sequence to make the audience have a reaction, to feel something. And when the show was at its best, I felt like it did that. When it got too bogged down in exposition or trying to explain things or trying to make every um, uh, square peg fit into whatever round hole it was trying to fit in, then I felt like it was less successful for my own for my for my own taste. Mm-hmm. Like you have uh, to keep the balls in the air. You don't want to stop and look at them. Yeah. Yeah, like who cares how the subterranean <laughs> tunnels got built? It, it's just that they did, and it's fun. Mm-hmm. You know, that to me was Marlene's genius with this show. Um, whenever it felt like too much needed to be explained, then I felt like it started to shine a light on how ridiculous so much of it was. You know, like like uh, a TV show, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think maybe that's why the Mona A reveal is so popular. Is like nothing's explained. It's like, oh yeah, Mona's A. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Yeah, I think that you know some of the people who who a lot again. I got a lot of shit for for one time saying that it's dream logic, <laughs> but but it is dream logic, and 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 I hold to that idea. The show is is a dream. It's a fairy tale. It doesn't. It doesn't matter how some of these things fit together. They don't fit together. That's that's the reality. There's there's too there's too much going on. There's too many things. There's too many opportunities where somebody wouldn't have been able to be there in any case and have all this information. There's just you, there's so many holes that 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 you would never be able to fill them all. So um, the idea of it being a dream has always helped me with the uh with the storytelling because um if you're trying to figure it out i can remember one time in fact uh, uh troyan even talked about this in an article shortly after the finale 
she said they asked her if she ever bumped up against the logic of the show and she said oh yeah she said the first couple of seasons i did all the time and she said norman uh, said to me one day he said let it go you know play the emotion the, the emotional truth is, is all you're playing in any given scene because logic i can remember when she said she said it's just not logical and i was like we're talking about logic in the third season of the show it just doesn't <laughs> it doesn't uh, it doesn't hold and so i know that some people would like to think that there's some underlying logic the same way they like to feel like that there's some underlying unity to um uh, some globalist conspiracy. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't think that that's true. You know, it's it's a, it's just, it's it's ideas and images that should make you you feel something, and what you feel is worth being curious about. I think that um, more than you know, how does this story all fit together? The the better question is why does this story resonate with you so much? What is it about this story that resonates? What is it that that makes you angry? What is it that makes you happy? What is it that makes you sad? Uh, I think all of those questions are worth asking, and any answer is valid. And and uh, you know, I, I I have my points of view about various relationships and ideas and stories, but that doesn't make my interpretation of the show more valid than anybody else's. You know, mm -hmm. it's it is what it is. It's 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 what it is for you. And uh, I think that that's one of the most interesting things about any work of art. Um, and I do, you know, say that with uh, uh, no embarrassment. This is its own work of art uh, within the realm of teen drama. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's it's got wonderful things to consider. And and dream logic is 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 the deepest logic, you know. But I I got a lot of shit for saying that. I got a lot <laughs> of blowback. Oh, and you know, uh, somehow or other that got attributed to marlene eventually as well and so she also got a lot of shit for that which i also felt kind of bad for it's like she's not the one who said it, it was norman well to to gently like poke at marlene i think hers was harder to say because hers her introduction was like interpretive, was interpretive memory, memory. Yeah. yeah but i i think you know it's been a couple of touchdowns for me that really helped me see the show better one was i think jacob clifton had listed not like plot points but like elements of the show that were ridiculous and like i remember it was one was like toby cavanaugh teen contractor maya saint germain teenager you know and at the end he was just like let it go like who cares and then you said dream logic and i thought that was brilliant because like you said when you wake up from the dream the details don't matter it's how you felt yeah is absolutely. what you stays with sticks with you yeah yeah and i think that that um the tv shows that get bogged down in exposition and and uh, even when Pretty Little Liars got bogged down in exposition, it just it just was less interesting. You know, it's just, well, who who cares? Who cares? Like how Mona got the money to do all these things? <laughs> she did. You know, she's Mona. Who, who cares how Alex Drake was able to make it over to the states and figure all this out and build this subterranean chamber? She did. You know, it just it just it doesn't matter. They're representations of ideas. And uh, if you look at the show that way, then I think you could talk about it forever. You guys could keep this podcast going on for another 20 years. Oh, boy. Because, because I think the, the show has that kind of information in it. Uh, the, the thing that I loved about working on it, it was such a great group of people. The, the writing uh, staff, the writer's room, uh, everybody in it was just an extraordinarily wonderful person. And... and um, I, I so enjoyed working on the show because 
I loved the people that I was working with and they're smart and they're interested and they're caring and they're, and they're um, uh, genuinely good people who care deeply about um, telling good stories. But that's what we're doing. We're sitting around a campfire telling stories and that's, that's the extent of it. It's not something that's, uh, it's not a puzzle that, that every piece fits into place. It's we're, we're, we're telling yarns as, uh, I think Joe Doherty said, you know, and, um, that, that was what was so wonderful about it. It was a group of people that came together for a period of seven years and we all were really in sync about the, uh, yarn that we were telling. And, uh, you know, it was almost like, uh, the the way the writers would work, they'd, it'd be like we were all sitting around a campfire and one handed off the story to another and then handed off the story to another. And, and my role in that was I got to come in from time to time and, and help uh, actualize that in a way that, that more people could share in it. And it, it, was, it was a lovely experience from top to bottom. I just don't have anything bad to say about it. Awesome. Well, I had a few more questions about Choose or Lose, your last episode there. Um, one of which you got to you got to have a little fun with Arya there. She was kind of dark Arya. Uh, oh, what, yeah. what was that like directing Lisa? I, Hale? Well, it was really fun because, uh, uh, as you know, I, I have a real soft spot for Lucy and I really have wanted for a long time to do, <laughs> uh, um, stories with her that are darker. You know, my whole future Aria <laughs> yes. riff is all about Aria being somebody who cares only about herself. And, <laughs> uh, I, I just, uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun doing those scenes. Lucy was, I think, feeling her, feeling free in a way to kind of experiment with certain things. It was, it was, uh, it was delightful. What can I say about it? She delivered. I would like to have taken it a lot further. I wish it had been something that had gone on a lot longer. I think that there were. That's my only regret about Pretty Little Liars is that I felt like sometimes there would be some really great idea and we wouldn't go far enough with it for long enough. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that uh, um, there were some stories that just got short shrift or by the time you understood what was happening, the story was over. Uh, some of that was driven by network concerns, I think. I think they would feel like, okay, now we need to move on to something else. Or some of it was because you didn't want to reveal a surprise. Uh, but I, I think that there were lots of stories over the seasons that I would love to have seen just go into more depth for a longer period of time. And certainly Arya collaborating with the enemy was, was one that I think could have could have uh, sustained over a longer period of time. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, throughout the whole show, Lucy Hill's performance as Arya is so, I don't want to use the word twitchy, but it's she kind of has like a, a thousand expressions on her face mm -hmm. uh, at all times. Um, and to see that played, it, she all seemed suspicious, but then when she really was up to doing doing no good there, it was especially delightful to see all those different emotions play out. Well, and it's the... I don't know if she's ever talked about it in an interview, and I would love to hear her talk about playing Arya now the show's over. But just the uh, the patented looking over the shoulder before talking—it was mm -hmm. like 
I felt like the storyline was like her finally following some aspect of that mannerism. Um, man, it was so good. <laughs> She's so great. I, I can't wait. I, I'm doing her new show uh, that Oliver Goldstick is also working on uh, Life Sentence. I shoot that in September. Mm. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, she's. Uh, I'm actually supposed to see her tomorrow for breakfast. We're both here in Vancouver now. So, uh, well, I, uh, please tell her we said hello. <laughs> <laughs> she can say who. I don't know. I'll tell her. <laughs> yeah. It'll, uh, it'll no, be fun to see her play an adult character. Yes, it will be. It will be really fun. I just am such a big fan of hers. I. I, I think that was one of the other things that always kind of bothered me about the Ezra Aria storyline is that I just felt like it didn't go into enough interesting places. Even if you wanted to say, okay, we're going to do a story about um, this couple uh, and they're together and they're in love. There were... There is a version of, of that story that, that could have gone t- to many different places that I don't think we got to see. And uh, they'll just have to remain for my fan fiction. <laughs> yeah, just the, the world in which they're both kind of theoretically in a relationship, but constantly working to their own ends, sometimes against each other, sometimes not. I mean, you, you get that a little bit in season seven, finally, when she goes dark. Um, I think they're having a lot more fun playing those characters. You know, we exasperated each other. We had a lot of fun. We had a lot. I had a lot of fun with uh, Ian and Lucy on the last season. I can't remember what. You know, it's it's already been almost a year and a half since I did the. I guess about. I'm trying to think. When did I shoot that? Yeah, it's been. Yeah, a year and almost a year and a half since I shot the proposal scene. Oh. Uh, I had a lot of fun with them over the last uh, couple of seasons. Just we would make fun of the things we were shooting, <laughs> 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 and the, just just things like uh, uh, the, on the last episode, she's leaving. She's got her hoodie and she's sneaking out the back, and he comes in, and and I think his line to her was, "Aria, we need to talk," or. Somewhere he said that. I just remember we were we were laughing just about how many times have they said that to one another? <laughs> Is where we need to talk. Right. And she's so sketchy in that scene too. She's so sketchy. <laughs> but I think we were it's joking like, over that course of the season. It's like, well, Arya doesn't have a job at the moment and she just keeps disappearing. And Ezra's never like, Hun, where where are you going? <laughs> <laughs> just even that would be like I mean, where's that scene? Where's that scene? Where's I don't understand what the hell's going on here. What, what do you do all day? I like to imagine <laughs> that Ezra he he talks it over with maybe like Caleb and Toby, but because their experience is the same, they all just figure this is normal. You know? Yeah, yeah. Just do it. It's just like eh, you know the girls. <laughs> Trust me, you don't want to know. Yeah. Or I just love the idea of you know he's down there running his coffee shop. She's laying upstairs in bed. You know, kind of watching the Today Show. You know, smoking <laughs> a cigarette. <laughs> in this episode the phone bursts on fire and she just leaves it burning on the floor and <laughs> well i i have to say i think that was more the way it was cut and i'm sure at the end they were like trying to get it down to time and taking a few frames off you did see that the uh phone dropped on the floor and 
and it disintegrated like a Mission Impossible phone. <laughs> but uh, it, it, uh, I think that that was just cut too tight. Okay. The the final analysis. <laughs> I think it's better that way. But there is a there is a there is a version of the story in which the brew burns down. <laughs> <laughs> What's Ezra gonna do now? I just love the idea that like, what was the whole trade off? Like, at what point did Toby go? Okay, you want to rent this place? Yeah, sure. I want to rent that place. I'll move there. You know, just all of the. The stuff that gets one character from one place to another. I mean, that was Toby's place. <laughs> yeah. Toby's place. We missed yeah. the scene where Ezra's boxes and he's in one of the bedrooms. He's like, what is that smell? <laughs> I can't get rid of it. Oh, God. I love it. Uh, but I, I always liked how, for you know, how you felt about that relationship, you were always very good, like visually, with Arya's sexuality. And not like necessarily sexualizing her, but the power dynamics. But um, in the 100th episode, I believe what was the moment I like to call it Batwings, <laughs> where she brings the sheet up over her as she devours him, one of, like, right. one of the children of the night. Well, you know, I, I, I ha- I've always had a, a, a strong problem with the idea of an older male manipulating a younger woman. So I, I always made a conscious choice to try to always stage her, I, I didn't do it all the time, but but I think if you looked at the, most of the scenes between them, she was either on his level or higher than he was. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly in the sex scenes, I had her dominate. Um, just because I, I wanted it to be clear that, that she is the agent of this, you know, that he is not taking advantage of her. I I, I worry about girls, women who give their power over to, to men, because I think men can be shits. And um, I, I really do believe that uh, I want to remind women, any of the people who follow me on Twitter or any of the people who watch my shows, that that women are strong. Mm-hmm. They're strong. And, and they should uh, assume their strength. So I try to be conscious of that. Try to be conscious of that idea. I certainly didn't want uh, to go for that classic, uh, you know, male dominating kind of framing where mm-hmm. the guy is looking down at the at the young woman. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah, it's a yeah. trope. It's a trope, and it's a, and it reinforces ideas of of uh, women as being the weaker sex, and I don't think they are. I think women are the stronger sex. Women have power. They deserve pleasure. Yeah. Speaking of powerful women, uh, this episode has the triumphant return of Detective Tanner. Yes, I was so excited about that when I found out. <laughs> um, I just think she's such a terrific actress, and uh, I just I love the whole idea of her in this show. I don't think she's a very good cop, but. Uh, <laughs> I think that I did just love her whole attitude. I, I shot a lot with her over the over the uh, seasons, and uh, uh, Roma has become a very good friend. And uh, I just really love the unexpected nature of that character. I love the hard cut to her at the beginning of this episode, and Spencer storms in, and she's just like, "What's going on? Where's Marco?" And then it's just like, "Boom, Tanner." Like, oh, well, and Tanner is like the 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 
one of the only people who 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 carries the same kind of weight that uh, Troyan does on the screen. Mm-hmm. You know, she she's a formidable opponent for for Spencer. And I loved her whole. I loved that whole scene where I can't remember the specifics of it. So you guys can probably remember better than me, but. Um, the the whole idea of like she knows everything that's gone down and she's just kind of letting her know that mm-hmm. oh yeah <laughs> she knows everything that went down with her and detective fury and and um the way that she she's you know and again i, I like to play a lot when i'm shooting i like to play a lot with with uh with um framing to emphasize power dynamics so troyan is sitting in 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 um, Roma was standing at the beginning of the scene, as I remember. Mm. And, and then at a certain point, she comes over and sits next to her. She's trying to reason with her. She's trying to get down on her level and saying, you know, let me help you. You know, mm. sooner or later, you know, you, you four girls need you four or five girls. You need to, uh, to let other people in. You need to let other people help you. And uh, I do think that's a that's a in, an interesting aspect of the show that I've never really thought about until it was over. Uh, just just how these girls felt like they needed to do it all themselves, as opposed to enlisting help. And the help they did enlist was usually ineffectual. It was usually their boyfriends, mm-hmm. ineffectual. You know that they never they never went to people who could really help them and. And what does that mean? Just from a, how how would you read that as a as a, if you were analyzing it? This idea that that they don't trust anybody. That that the idea that all authority figures are not to be trusted, um, and just how that fits into our current political situation. <laughs> Or cur- the the world currently, mm-hmm. just yeah. the idea that you can't trust anybody who's in authority, and that that's such a running theme of the show. I don't think it's conscious. I don't think anybody was sitting around thinking we're doing a show that, that's about the idea that young women can't trust the authority system. But when you look at it, because I do believe that in any creative endeavor, there's a lot of of unconscious material that comes up. And I, I'm, I'm a believer in the ideas of Carl Jung. I'm a believer in the ideas of the collective unconscious. I always think that the that the story that's being told is reflecting certain elements of the of the um, unconscious content of the zeitgeist, particularly a show that's popular. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, what is it saying? And that that one of the underlying themes of the show is that I cannot trust anybody i can't trust the authority figures so you have this authority figure that's trying to 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 say let me help you and there's just no trust there because we we have lost trust in our institutions we've lost trust in our in our uh, police departments we've lost trust in our in our um um um, certainly our government (laughs) our our teachers our education system yeah you know, we, we, we've lost, we've lost trust and that that's one of the things that the show really captured. And I think it's one of the reasons it resonated. I, I, uh, I, I would, I would speculate that that's so. I think that's one of the reasons that the Tanner character is interesting and probably so infuriating to at least some of the fans I know just from watching Twitter is that 
she's following in the footsteps of Wilden and then Holbrook, who kind of show themselves to be real antagonists and, and real you know, not to males. be trustworthy. Yeah, yeah, not to be trusted. And there she is. She's actually just a cop trying to help, but they cannot trust her. Well, I think what makes her interesting, well, there's a lot of things that make her interesting, but yeah, I think that what you're saying about how it's it's hard to trust authority is probably more true for young women than it is for like the three of us. But the fact that here is an older woman saying you can trust me and I, I get the, the reticence to the, the, it's harder to bridge that gap. Can I actually trust you? Do you actually know what I'm, what I'm talking about, what I'm coming from? Plus also the, the guilt they carry at various times. Mm-hmm. But I also like the fact that I felt that Roma really captured that aspect of the character that she, that she felt for them, you know, that she really did understand something else is going on here that she ultimately proves to be their friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is a indicator of a of a woman who understands just how screwed up the whole mm-hmm. situation is. I, I joke about it, but I do think that 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 character would make a great spinoff. You know, this character that is just so jaded about everything that's gone down and uh, just rolls through life trying to help, but. I think she's probably like the the easiest character. Like to me, the most fits in there for her to have a spinoff. I think I could see that show one hundred percent. Well, I right guess now. The, the question would be, what would the show be if if it was kind of like Detective Tanner returning to her own TV show? Would it just be a procedural at that point, or would you lose some of the uh, the dramatic irony? I guess of dropping her into a world. That. I think I said on the last podcast I did with you guys, it's an existential procedural. Mm. Nothing ever gets solved. Yeah, right. Just kind of, she kind of rolls through life as this detective philosopher. You mm. know, she philosophizes just about how man is evil, things are screwed up, and there's there's really no hope. But she's still going to try. <laughs> I, <laughs> it's just a, it's an interesting idea. I, I like I like musing on it. I think you take her and uh, well, I guess Toby's not really a cop anymore. Um, <laughs> Was he ever? <laughs> you take her, you take Barry, you drop him in. I think you have Barry do the other cops' lines in the first scene of any Law and Order episode, or he's just like white male, early forties, was found by the neighbor, and she's just like, "What's really in our hearts?" You know, <laughs> <or whatever. laughs> What's really going to happen here? Are yeah. we going to solve this? Probably not. What difference does it make? It's going to roll on to the next town. And what see are what, neighbors? You know. Yeah. Because <laughs> she was always part of the state police, as I remember. Mm-hmm. She wasn't She wasn't part of the Rosewood Police Department. She was, I forget what her what her actual title was. She's but, a lieutenant, I believe, mm-hmm. in state police. Yeah, but so, you know, she's just rolling around Pennsylvania, checking things out. But Shrugging just, her shoulders and moving on to the next town. Yeah. Because time's a flat circle for her. Um, it's a flat circle. I just, I love though, and I don't know, you know, larger story what, what Roma Mafia is told, but I love that she just shows up with this kind of bemused, I know more than you vibe. I love the way she plays this character. Oh, I do too. I do too. She she was such a blast to work with because she just, she would come in and she'd say, well, what's happened here since I was here last? And, you know, because she's not keeping up with the show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and it's like, oh, nothing. It's all the same. She's like, okay, so I still don't know anything. I'm still <laughs> trying to figure it out. Like, yeah, I'm still just trying to figure it out. 
but uh, I just really adored working with her. I was, I was so happy that my my valedictory episode had her in it. So <laughs> it was definitely a, a fun one. I think I introduced her into the show, if I'm not mistaken. I think that my episode, uh, her first episode was was mine. I think that that was one that I directed. S four E four maybe. Can't remember that somewhere, FaceTime? somewhere around there. Yeah, it's FaceTime. Um, we've heard Holbrook in the car, and uh, what is it about these four girls? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was definitely mine, and uh, and also she had the scene with uh, Ashley in the park, which mm-hmm, was yes. my favorites. You know, it's a lot of rough mob activity here in Rosewood. <laughs> which, uh, listening to Joe Doherty's uh, podcast with you guys, I guess there is a lot of uh, yeah. There's some mob activity in, in Rosewood. <laughs> Who knows? That would explain a lot. Definitely, yeah. Well, I, I liked his, his what I took from his reasoning, which is kind of like maybe she's really there just because there is this larger, darker story in Rosewood, and it's like these girls are the mechanism to maybe get to that kind of mystery, and then along the way you've got people like Toby and <laughs> that she has to deal with. <laughs> Toby student cop. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just I uh yeah, I I I was it was interesting cuz I listened to your podcast with Joe and he had never expressed a lot of those ideas to me and I really enjoyed hearing him talk about it because I love the whole idea of of Rosewood being connected by these tunnels that already existed for whatever nefarious purpose they were there but uh that was fun. That was fun to hear his take on that, because we all kind of compose our own backstories for these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would, I would, as I was doing my prep on any given episode, I would compose my own ideas of what I thought happened, um, so that if an actor asked, I had an answer for that. But, but um, that was great. I, I enjoyed listening to that podcast a lot because. Uh, I thought that made a lot of sense, actually. It, it had logic to it. Mm-hmm. For all the people who want real logic instead of dream logic, there seemed <laughs> to be like some some answers there in that podcast for them. Definitely, yeah. Uh, I know one thing we want to talk to you about is some of the, the use of music on the show and in your episodes in particular. I know Denmark and Winter was a uh, uh, band that you brought in a couple of times, I believe. Uh, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on uh, kind of the music side of directing. Well, um, the the music, I really think the the, the music supervisor is a guy named Chris Moyer, and mm-hmm. he, I think he's wonderful, brilliant guy, and um, uh, he provides the editorial staff with a lot of different new music that they then draw upon. It's the editors who really deserve the credit for for uh, most of the music and the use of the music in the show. Certainly directors and certainly the writers would collaborate with the editors and say, no, not that song, let's find another or, or pick this or that. Uh, I will take credit for the, um, the, the song in the 100th episode because I did put that one in there. But that was pulling from a pool of music that he presented the editors and um um i don't think that um they get enough credit overall uh editors on a show on a tv show 
actually bring a lot more to the table than a visiting director does because they're there all the time. They're they're maintaining the the continuity from episode to episode. They're they're um, um, really helping define the style and and feel of the show. Uh, I certainly feel like I did that when I was editing on television series back in the day. Um, they're the ones that really should get the credit for that. Their their collaboration with Chris Moliere. Um, and and uh, I um, um, just think they uh, do a great job of 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 finding music that that plays counterpoint that that uh, um, syncs up with that that uh, underlines that that makes you feel something at, at various places. I, I just think they did a great job and. Um, Every episode that I was uh, able to work on, I just I gained a lot from whatever support I got from the editor. Uh, I think that Lois uh, Blumenthal, if I'm not mistaken, she was the editor. Uh, yeah, she was the editor on the hundredth episode, and so we were sitting there trying to figure what we could use in certain scenes, and she played me a bunch of different songs, and that was one of them. So. So I guess I'm curious, how does that process work for people who don't know? Do you give some notes to an editor and then they give you a cut and then you guys just kind of. Well, they give me a cut first. They, they're cutting along as I'm shooting and then okay. I go in and sit with them and they show me the cut that they've done. Um, and um, sometimes it's very close to what it needs to be. And sometimes it's not. And we talk about what the, the, um, changes that, that one might make. I work on it for a period of a few days and then I turn it over to the producers and the producers continue to work with the editors on it. Mm. Uh, sometimes it'll end up on the air different than I, than I turn it in, but oftentimes it'll end up very close to what I, what I presented. The editor's job in my estimation is to track the psychological line of the story. They, really are the surrogate for the audience. Where do you want to be now? What do you want to be looking at? Uh, what do you want to be feeling about this particular scene? Uh, how can we how can we make that land? How can we underline certain things? Um, oftentimes my notes initially will be, I think you've missed the point of this scene. You have it you know, more focused on this character and I think it really needs to be focused on this other character or um, I'll say something like, uh, I think that moment needs to be platformed a little bit. Can you kind of open up the space? I tend to direct actors a little to, to take their time and to, to move a, at a little slower pace than most directors do. Because I came through editorial. That was you know, my career path. I came mm -hmm. up as an editor. And, and what I realized was that you can uh, condense, but you can't expand. Mm -hmm. And so if you slow people down as they're delivering lines, then you have more to work with. You can pace it up, but if, if they're going too quick, then you can't you can't slow them down. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, so a lot of it is just figuring out where you want the beats, where you want the the subtext to come through. Uh, sometimes you want a line on somebody's faces or saying it, and sometimes you want the line to be on the person who's listening. It's it's making all those kinds of decisions and and. Uh, Pretty Little Liars had a great team of editors, and it was it, it, they really were full full collaborators uh, on the creative front. Um, um, 
So when you're um when you're shooting the hundredth episode there, that love scene with Arya and Ezra, for example, you probably know there's going to be a song over this. This is a montage, but you don't know what the song is yet. Would that be that's correct? Right. Yeah. That's right. That's and right. then depending on what you pick, that's gonna kind of influence how we read the scene. Yeah, absolutely. And um um I think that uh, I, I can't remember the specifics because that's now been a while back, but I think we began with something much more aggressive in that scene, um, musically. Mm. I, I would have to talk to Lois about it. She would remember probably better than I do. But um, yeah, it's an experimentation, and and uh, the very songs you put up can really change the meaning of the scene. Absolutely, it's it's. The, the score too the 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 score the way the score plays whether or not you you play something uh with darker elements as opposed to something sweeter and more melodic i mean i'm a big uh, fan of dissonance because uh, i think that it, it indicates just uh how uh how um things really are, you know, that there's always like a dissonant element in, in life. And uh, I, I find that music that kind of plays that makes me feel more than, than things that are, that are uh, more sentimental. You know, I don't, I don't really respond to sentimental music as, as score very much because I, I feel like it underlines what's already there. Uh, I tend to uh, think of music as low tones tend to, emphasize more the universal aspects of whatever the feeling component is, whereas melody tends to make it much more personal. So there will be melodies that people will identify with characters. But when you get into the lower tones, then then it's more universal. It could be about anybody, anything. It's one of the reasons why I think that um, uh, Thomas Newman's music is so successful in films is that he plays a lot with with tones as opposed to melody lines. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, also, you know, Terrence Malick's movies oftentimes, you know, the 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 scores tend to revolve around these repeating tones as opposed to strong melody lines. And so, when you watch the movie, it's a much more universal experience you have. Um, that that's that's my point of view about the way that film music can be used. And, and I think that the, uh, the nature of teen drama is that you use a lot of songs. And so to try to find a song that is not telegraphing what you want people to be feeling, but, but takes them deeper into the experience, it just becomes another, another um, color that you use to, to paint the picture. Well, I think the perfect example of what you're talking about is, of course, hide-and-seek in the OC. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which uh, which I edited that sequence. Yep, that was a really interesting process because I actually had come across uh, Imogene Heap from um, from our music supervisor Alex Pitsavis and and kind of brought her to the attention of uh, Josh. I said, I think this this woman singer is really interesting. She's and again, like it's tones. You know that she's singing. It's more than the melody lines, almost. You know, they're like they're long tones. That that it's just that song is very tonal. You know, mm -hmm. 
and uh, it, it makes you feel something. Uh, and it, it was used first in the episode around the death of the grandfather. And then I think it was playing underneath the funeral scene and then it comes back again. So it, it has a real strong association with, uh, with uh, the dissolution of family ties. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I thought that that was um, a great use of music. And as evidenced by the fact that it's, you know, it's become a pop cultural reference and yeah. people make fun of it. Whenever that happens, you know, you've succeeded. <laughs> you still get interviewed about it. It's, it's an SNL skit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I actually was interviewed by entertainment weekly just about a year ago. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's been two. I don't I, Time flies so fast. I don't even know anymore. <laughs> so it's a, uh... well, it's definitely interesting to hear that perspective on the score and how you like to use it because it, when I think of PLL score, there's a, there's like a mystery theme or a cue that uh, kind of gets laid down when, when, you know, new evidence is being discovered or something. I wonder how you feel about that. Cause that's a very specific, we want you to feel like the, the game is a foot type of thing, as opposed to kind of what you were more talking about. Yeah. You know, if anything, I feel like most TV shows are overscored and I don't exclude pretty little liars from that. I think that it becomes a bad of music at a certain point. Mm-hmm. And, um, I know that, um, you know, some of the things I think are scored really well are the things I feel like are, are underlined a little bit too much for my taste, but that's not, to, that's just taste, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't have anything to do with, with it being right or wrong as much as it's just my taste. I know. What's seems- a movie, what's a movie that you guys really like that you think is really beautifully scored? What's, what's, uh, what's a, a score that you think, boy, that score really does it really takes me deeper into that movie no oh, i'm gonna i'm gonna go for the easy answer for me but it's true to myself it's gonna be vertigo i thought you're gonna say stars for a sec i was like no. you can't say star wars no i was yeah. gonna say vertigo is a great example yeah it's a great example of uh of a score and and, and how it's used to enhance uh, for me it would be the movie birth hmm. uh, i don't know if you guys have seen that it's a jonathan glazer film mm-hmm with Nicole Kidman. Have you seen it? Mm-hmm. I have not seen it. I've seen yeah. it years ago, but I, I know you you mentioned the works of Jonathan Glazer. Yeah, the score in that movie is brilliant. And the way that the score is used is is truly it's it's uh it's the Alexander Desplat score and uh it's 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 as important to the experience of the movie as the cinematography is. And the cinematography is great as well. Mm-hmm. The way that music is used in that film is is a uh, is textbook i mean it, it's i i when i was teaching at ucla i actually put that film up and showed them the score and talked about it and talked about how it how it builds how it how it tells the story of the movie on a musical level mm. and i feel like on a lot of tv shows music becomes more like wallpaper as mm-hmm. opposed to telling the story and building and and, and being used as a as a constructive element towards making you understand it on a deeper level. The, uh, that, that's neither good nor bad. That just is. Yeah. The trend I've noticed, I feel like whenever I watch like a, a pilot is that there's so many, there's such so many songs. The PLL's pilot has a ton yeah, of yeah, songs. I, yeah. I watch the pilot for like the bold type and there's just like a song every minute and a half. There's a new song cue and it's, it's too much. It's a gauntlet of music that I just, <laughs> I'm not feeling anything. It's just, it's too hip. Um, 
Well, part of that is just what the network and studio feel like is is part of what people are coming to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the thing that um, um, sets apart cinema from from television. Mm-hmm. Is the, is the way that music is used, though you know you see movies now that are doing the same thing as television shows do, and you see other television shows that are doing you know really interesting scores. The score for The Crown is is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Have you seen Mr. Robot? Did you watch Mr. Robot season two? I didn't watch season two. I watched season one. Ah, okay, I wanted to ask you about something. There, there's a, a certain song that they really highlight, and I think it's in the the first episode of season two. But Phil Collins, yeah. Yeah, they, there's like a Phil Collins song that just plays over like this entire scene. It's a really interesting use. Well, and we don't want to ruin it for Norman, but like it's it's a great use of like just keep the camera right here with this song playing in the background. And um, but I, I do enjoy the score for that show. Mm-hmm. I think it works strongly. We'll have to have Norman back whenever we uh, force Benjamin into a Mr. Robot podcast. <laughs> you know, I think that the one of the things that I I hope you guys think about doing because i think that it's a great idea is take a film or a tv show or an episode and really just do a a podcast about that and do a roundtable discussion about that you know Mm -hmm. i think that there's there's a lot of film analysis you can read about various things but it's so much more interesting when there's actually a dialogue going on back and forth Mm -hmm. uh it's so much more interesting when that's one of the things I loved about teaching is you, you stand up in front of a class and you hear um, what people think about things and, and then you respond to that and that makes them respond and back and forth and back and forth and, and, and you get to something that's much more, it's a dialectic and it's, it's so much more interesting than just reading what one person thinks. You know? I crave that. I crave conversations where you really dissect something you know, and, and talk about why it, it had power and what moments had power. And that's one of the things I've, I've so enjoyed about your podcast is that, and, and I think other people have said it, Torian said it to you, Joe Doherty said it to you, uh, the, the fact that you're, that you're talking about the show that we all work on and really responding to things that are important to us is, is, is delightful. You know, it, it gives it gives us uh, the reason to um, continue to want to dig deep and do it again. You know, so uh, I, I don't know, something to think about. Hmm. So like just to pick an, an, a, a show or a movie and just have three or four people on to discuss it. You know, well, I, I have two things there. I know one of the problems with Benjamin Light's moment was that Troyan was pleased that he picked up on on Twinster stuff. Um, I think she was really pleased at that, you know, the subtle work that was being done there was being noticed by a contingent of people. Um, and I, I, apropos nothing, I finally sat down to watch A Place in the Sun last night because you had mentioned it when we saw you last. I only watched about half of it, but um, that was one of those movies that, that it's always been like on my list to watch. And you were talking about it when we saw you and George Stevens. It's such a great film. It's such a great film in terms of, it's again, it's a, it's a, it's a film that I, that I show to students and talk about with students because it's, it's particularly the use of sound mm-hmm. and the use of light and the staging of it, the blocking of it is just spectacular. Mm-hmm. So the, the thing that I find so powerful about that film is, 
is the way he shoots Elizabeth Taylor versus the way he shoots um, Shelley Winters. He really makes you care for the Elizabeth Taylor character in the same way that the Montgomery Cliff character does. Yeah. He makes you fall in love with her. And he treats the Shelley Winters character with, with almost disdain. The, the, how far did you get? Did you get to the point where she says she's pregnant? Or? Oh, yeah, I got, I got a little past that. But yeah, she gets pregnant in the dark. <laughs> she gets pregnant in the dark, and she's in the dark. She's always in the dark. Yeah. Uh, and in the scene where she tells him that she's pregnant, her back is to the camera. Mm-hmm. And it stays there in this locked off frame that feels very claustrophobic. It's this long scene. Yeah. And the bed takes up most of the frame. And he's looking at her, but we're, the audience is not looking at her. We're like outside of it on her back. So it de-emphasizes any pathos you might feel for her um, situation. Mm-hmm. You know, such that like by the time he, he, by the time he kills her, you're you're kind of on board with it, yeah. <laughs> you know, and and I think it's a it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty interesting um, thing that you would just never see in even a film these days. Maybe you might. I mean, there's some people who have the courage to make, do that kind of filmmaking. I just thought it was masterful the way that he makes you really understand what that character is going through. He falls in love with Elizabeth Taylor. He wants to kill Shelley Winters. And, and the first time you really see her in a big close up is just before she, she bites it, you know? So, and I really, and I really grew to care about that character um, where I left off. Uh, I felt like she was the discarded storyline to the meet cute between him and Elizabeth Taylor and their, their, his unrequited love for her. Um, this is all that all the scenes with Shelley Winters are also, you know, these locked off frames and all the scenes with Elizabeth Taylor are gliding around and, you know, this beautiful moving camera that just makes you swept up in, in what's happening to him. It's, it's just a great film. It really is. I'm surprised you stopped watching it. I'm surprised you just like gave up halfway through, but. you know, you know, I, I can, I can beat that. I stopped watching the clouds of Silmaria last night right at the epilogue so i still don't know how the movie ends which is so frustrating for me because i just there's like little things i want to say that i don't i don't know what he'll perceive as a spoiler yeah i'm disappointed in both of you that's all i can Mm, say i'm disappointed in both of you i I, like that filmmaker a lot that filmmaker is courageous he really goes out there he really goes out there Um, and we talked about like we've talked a little bit online and in, in person about personal shopper um that movie is so interesting it's it's so interesting. I've still been I, I I want to watch it again because I I uh, have still been thinking a lot about it. And just what particularly relative to the one of the things I've been thinking a lot about since that movie is the nature of the cloud. Just all this information and stuff in the cloud. I almost feel like that we as individuals are more like iPhones. We're just transmitters of information, mm-hmm. and and that that. Uh, you know, the actual consciousness exists independent of any particular, we're, we're, we're no different than iPhones. We have designed obsolescence in us. And um, the information, the idea of consciousness, the, the evolving consciousness continues whether this transmitter is here or not. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we get very caught up in the idea that I am the generator, I am the thing that's creating, I am the thing that's that's um, um, the important uh, part of this whole story, the world revolves around me, but it's not true. You know, we're 
only ever just transmitting whatever it is that's 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 moving in the in the greater consciousness and all of us are at the leading edge of that if we choose to be and and movies seem to be grappling with those ideas which i found really interesting and you could do a story it's like a, a metaphor for romance there i think with with phones and people and that you can be updated to a point you can be the hot new thing again and again to a certain point and then you really have to upgrade or move on or um it made me appreciate there was something that Joseph Dorty did in one of his episodes that people talked about a lot with the uh, the ones and zeros when they send a text oh. <laughs> at the end of season six. It made me like personal shopper made me appreciate that more just because that shit does get thrown into the cloud. You know, whatever you text out into the world and then it goes to this omnipotent cyber ninja and yeah. hilarity ensues. See, my takeaway from those movies, personal shopper and uh, clouds of Sils Maria is maybe it's just because i've been watching too many like kind of mainstream american movies it's fascinating to see scenes where they kind of breathe and they're not just kind of spouting plot exposition the whole time and kind of moving on to the next thing Uh, it's neat to see like here's a scene of somebody doing their job and that's just what they do for the whole scene and it's the meat the the importance of the scene is subtextual rather than textual you know yeah but also the thing that i liked about both of those movies is the the idea of of how solitary we all are Mm -hmm. we all live in kind of a world of ghosts you know i'm sitting alone right now in a hotel room you guys are sitting in two different places we're all talking but you know you might as well be ghosts you know it's it's this idea that we move through the world live in in our own little bubble and um i thought that personal shopper particularly really got that idea very uh very clearly that that sense of you know her boyfriend is away in some other country you know she's communicating with him in the same way she's trying to communicate with her dead brother um she has no relationship with the woman that she works for you know i i find those ideas to be really interesting because so many of the relationships that have started to mean a great deal in my life are people that i don't even see Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm on any kind of regular basis. Um, it's an interesting idea to, to think about what are the stories you could tell. And certainly, Pretty Little Liars dealt a lot with that. I mean, this idea that there was this omnipotent observer of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Gossip Girl as well, right? Gossip Girl as well, yeah. And uh, the, the uh, which is, it's a strange idea. A lot of people feel that way about God. They feel they have, an, they have an image, they have a God image that God is always watching them, judging them, evaluating them, that they're always existing um, at the effect of that, that unseen uh, presence. In certain ways, you know, that's, that's just an extension of that. Mm-hmm. But I, I do, uh, I did really like Personal Shopper because I felt like it, it captured something that's very, um current about the way we live now the fact that we we all live in these little bubbles and even when we're together sometimes we're just on our phones <laughs> well you know? there's there's so much travel in that movie and yet she still you know takes her ghosts with her yeah. whether she's just going across the channel or she's going to a whole other time zone part of the world um and i and i love Colossus maria just because the the blending of different roles there. I mean that that shit's catnip to me. The the having having Maria Enders Enders, you know, play the other role in that play. 
Um, and then having case to kind of embody the younger woman, you know, in her personal life. I, it's, it's so interesting to me. Well, it is interesting. It's interesting this, because even as, um, you know, I'm, 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 uh, at an age now where there's a lot of younger guys that are coming up. I, I had dinner last night with a guy who used to edit for me, who's now a director. And we were talking about a lot of my assistants, people who worked for me back in the day as a, as an, when I was an editor, you know, they're all directing now the, the idea that you will always be replaced. Mm-hmm. There will always be people who come up behind you and replace you. And what does that mean? You know, uh, what is it that's being replaced? Or like I say, is there just some collective body of knowledge that, that, that I am a transmitter of for a period of time and then somebody else uh, takes over that role? It's a, it's a lot more um, peace-inducing if you, if you uh, accept the fact that it's just the nature of things. You know? Eventually you'll disappear into the clouds of Sils Maria. <laughs> I am an iPhone three. You are an iPhone four. You know, like um, the iPhone seven is already out, and the iPhone eight is about to come out. You know, so it's uh, this idea that uh, that it's okay. It's okay that that the consciousness is just constantly pushing forward and is is moving on. And uh, I, I think that um, both of those films were dealing with those ideas mm-hmm. underneath the surface and and. Whether he did, whether he he means it consciously or not, I cannot say. I've read interviews with him. He he tends to be very uh, poker faced. He plays his cards close to his vest in terms of what he wants you to take away from from his movies. But the very fact that it opens up these corridors in my mind is a great thing. And I, I found them both to be movies that have given me a lot of um, food to my soul. You mm-hmm. know the the idea that it's perfectly okay to get older it's perfectly okay to see somebody else succeed at something that you have done it's perfectly okay to lose a loved one it's perfectly okay to to feel the need to communicate with that loved one and yet you ultimately always come back to yourself you know that that, that's what i found so powerful about the end of that movie is like was there a ghost was there not a ghost does it matter the the fact of the matter is is that ultimately she is there with herself. It's only ever herself because we are all the same energy and the same consciousness. And I thought that was a very powerful statement. You know, well, I'm getting a little bit off the point here. <laughs> no, but it, that's that. Like you said, it's those movies are great. I think Benji and I both appreciate that they're they're kind of framed in, in certain ways as thrillers, or they use some of the same devices. It feels like something extreme could happen at any moment and yet it never really they does are, yeah they really do open certain neural pathways or they start mm-hmm. certain conversations and i i i can't say i've seen a ton of i always butcher asias's movies but he did i the one movie i have seen is he directed my favorite titled movie of all time so it's an okay movie is demon lover <laughs> i haven't seen demon lover i want to see it it's okay uh, it's it's good it's interesting I hear that he's doing a new film with Julie Binoche, and I can't wait for that to come out because I, I just think that he's really onto something that, that, that fascinates me anyway. And I guess that's kind of what I'm saying, you know, bring it back to Pretty Little Liars. Uh, the, I, I just find it so interesting what people become obsessed by relative to a, a television show. The most interesting stuff in Pretty Little Liars to me is certainly not the plot. <laughs> you know, it just isn't. And, and, and I can 
have respect for people who say, well, it's the most important thing to me. Well, that's fine. I get it. But it's not. It's just not the most important thing to me. The important thing to me is is the relationships between the girls and how they make me feel and, and uh, you know, how uh, the themes unfold. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm much more interested in theme than I am in plot. I'm much more interested in character than I am in, in, uh, in plot. I don't, I don't really care about plot. You know, returning to Vertigo, Vertigo has a ridiculous plot, but the, the theme of it is something that we can all relate to. The theme mm-hmm. of it is, is very clearly about the idea of needing to repeat something to, to, that gave you happiness, you know, to, that, that I will only be happy if I can have this thing that already made me happy mm-hmm. again. And, uh, and that's just not possible. And, and that idea is a very powerful one. And that's the reason why I think that movie speaks to people here 60 some odd years after it came out. You know? It flirts with that, that ugly side in all of us, the desire to control something yeah. or someone. Yeah, the repetition complex. It's kind of like it made me happy once. It's going to make me happy again. Yeah. And, and I think that even that even comes back to the idea of the shippers. You know, it's kind of like I like that couple. They make me happy. They made me feel something. I want to feel that same thing. I want it over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 the fear of like having a new experience. It's the fear of of moving on. It's the fear of of having a different experience of life. That life is constantly changing, and loss is the one thing you can count on. People don't want to believe that. They want to believe that there's something that I can absolutely sink my teeth into and it's never going to go away because I'm going to bite down hard. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and, I, and I just think that ultimately that's a path to unhappiness. Yeah. And, and um, so both of those movies, Closet Sills Marie and Personal Shopper, Vertigo, whatever, uh, Birth, the movie I was talking about earlier, Birth, so many movies that, I, that I've really been moved by are about this very thing. It's about the idea of, of you have no choice but to move forward. How you move forward is up to you. And the more you cling to something, the unhappier you will be. And that's, that's, that's a powerful idea. Well, and, and I think something when we talked to George Osterley, he kind of echoes what you're saying is that he's talking about the, the sensibilities that they all brought to the show. And Sometimes they weren't aware of them until they presented themselves. And then they were like, oh, hey, I think I'm kind of fascinated by this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that that's the other thing about doing a television show. Number one, people don't realize how hard it is to do a TV show week after week after week and how fast it has to go. You know, so there's so many things being being decided so quickly that that, yeah, we make mistakes. You know, we make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, the the thing is, the more you trust the unconscious, you know, I'm feeling this. It's later you figure it out. It's later you go back and you look at it and you you think, oh, that's what was really going on here. And uh, I think the reason why Joe and I really enjoyed working together as much as we did, I, I think I directed, I, I think I netted out at nine of his episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the reason why we enjoyed working together so much is that we were both that type of person we were constantly looking at things after the fact reflecting on it thinking like oh wow this reminds me of such and so you know this is this is what this evokes for me mm-hmm. but oftentimes it wasn't conscious as we were going into it all right well very interesting discussion uh thank you norman for joining us uh before we go we just wanted to ask you know what's next for you we know you're going to do be, be doing life sentence in a couple 
for about a month now. Um, well, I'm I'm up in Vancouver right now. I'm doing the arrangement, uh, second season of that. I'm doing episode two hundred three, so uh, I'm very much looking forward to that. I have a very good script, and the show is a lot of fun. Have you seen that? Have you guys watched that show? I haven't, but that that brings you back with Mandy Line, right? It does. It, <laughs> uh, it's 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 a fun show. It's 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 a really good show. I recommend it. So I do that, and then I go to Atlanta. I'm doing the finale of Step Up, which is a new show for YouTube Red. Mm. Oh, is that with Brian Holdman? Uh, yes, it is. Cool. Nice. And then I come back to Vancouver to do Life Sentence with Lucy and Oliver, and then I go back to Atlanta to do Dynasty. <laughs> then wow. it looks like right now I'll be back in LA in December doing Famous in Love. That's not confirmed yet, but um, I think that's the window that we're looking at. So I'm very happy that that show got picked up. Okay, cool. So uh, yeah, you know, it's a it's a good fall ahead of me, mm-hmm. and uh, I always enjoy talking to you guys. It's a lot of fun. Oh, likewise. Yeah. So how's your project going? Uh, well, uh, do we want to talk about this on or off the air? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we can talk about it another time. Why don't we uh, just just make fun for the listeners? Why don't we just leave this part in and then we'll just gracefully end the episode and chat Norman off air? Hear the music. Yeah. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs> bye everyone. Uh- <laughs>